0: Welcome back to Sleep for Performance podcast. I'm really excited about this one today. I've been pestering Haley for a few years to come on the podcast. She keeps turning me down. But finally, my day has come. And not only has my day come to have Haley on the podcast, my day has come to talk about this awesome paper, which is titled Strange Themes in Pandemic Dreams. Themes and dreams. Insomnia was associated with more negative, anxious, and death-related dreams during the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, we'll come back onto that title in a few minutes, but before we do, Haley, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about you, because I don't really know that much about you. I've seen you on Twitter, um, ResearchGate and so on, but I don't really know you as a person. So um, let's spend a few minutes getting to know one there, as the, as the man says. Um, who are you? Where are you from? What are you doing?
1: <laughs> well, uh, lovely too. I don't think we've actually met. Properly before this. So no, it's actually um,
0: technically illegal to use cash and it's illegal to talk to people face to face now. That's that's the new thing since
1: 2019.
0: Since 2019.
1: And <laughs> no one can ask no cash. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, yeah, very nice to meet you. So I'm a psychologist. I've worked predominantly in the sleep disorders area. So I did um, a master of psychology and my First job out of that was at Melbourne Sleep Disorder Centre um, with David Cunnington and, and John Sweeker and Moira. Oh, yeah. Ritter.
0: I know, David.
1: Um, yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're a great team over there. And um, yeah, it was really my first foray in, into the sleep world. And I sort of came in it from um, the, much more of the insomnia research side and, and um, uh, really interested in working with people with sleep disorders, um, you know, more difficulty sleeping. And kind of through some of that work, um, I kept getting referred some patients that had more nightmare disorder and and, you yeah, the, the talk of dreams really came a lot more into my work through that role. So, um, yeah, I sort of come at this from a much more insomnia clinician and, and researcher. Um, but now what I'm doing is I'm working at St Vincent's uh, Public Hospital in their sleep center as their sleep psychologist, but I'm also doing a PhD at Monash University. And my research is more focused on training um, healthcare providers and particularly psychologists in how to address sleep disorders.
0: Uh-huh.
1: As a surprise, surprise. Um, we don't actually get much training um, in sleep. So we did a study and found that uh, trainee psychologists only get a median of one hour of sleep education during their postgraduate training. Um, And considering, you know, the overlap between sleep and mental health problems, it's it's a bit ridiculous. So uh, my PhD is sort of um, creating a a sleep training workshop for psychologists, really trying to upskill them and and have them a bit more savvy with evidence-based treatments, insomnia and other sleep disorders.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting area, isn't it, in terms of educating other health professionals because people think that, you know, GPs, medical doctors, all these professionals, they're the person I should go and talk to about sleep, and they're the person I should go and talk to about nutrition, and we need to dig into it. Like, I think it's like an average of eight hours for a GP, you know, maybe an hour on nutrition. It's like, oh, really? But about 60, 70% of the problems presented to a GP are, I'm not sleeping well, my weight's up, my weight's down, and it's like really it's it's fascinating that we that they don't get enough training in this area and like you're saying now with psychologists as well and it's such an integral part to setting up good we'll say mental health or good daily rhythms or routines or whatever your goal is going to a psychologist if you're not sleeping well everything else just kind of spins out of control
1: it does it really does, and it just it makes a lot of the other work a lot harder to do. Um, there's some studies showing that if people sleep poorly before and after a treatment session, they don't retain a lot of the information from that session. So there's yeah there's there's a lot of um good things about doing some sleep work for healthcare professionals, and mm-hmm. hopefully um, in the next few years there'll be a bit of an increase. Um, so yeah, it's something I think with my interests that I really want to see see happen, and I know the ASA is doing a lot of work, or the Australasian Sleep Association, is doing a lot of great work in this space. Hopefully, we'll see some change over the next few years.
0: Excellent. So, um, so you're a clinical psychologist, then, Hilly? Uh,
1: generally registered. I did a, a master of counselling psychology. So um, back in the day at Swinburne, they had the clinical and the counselling streams. So. Oh. Um, But yeah, counseling psychology just has a little bit more of a focus on kind of working with, you know, grief loss type issues, a bit more focused, you know, I guess away from kind of working, you know, in a public hospital setting with, you know, people experiencing schizophrenia and those type of issues to more, um, you know, kind of real difficulties that people will kind of experience in their day to day lives. You know, helping them them cope and, and kind of things that might just cause stress, anxiety, you know, worry, these sorts yeah. of things as opposed to real clinical um, disorders. But in practice, there's a lot of overlap between the the, the two, the kind of the two areas.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I never thought about it like that, that the difference between counselling and psychology, I suppose we use these terms probably what well, I do anyway interchangeably, mm-hmm. or counselling is like just day to day. But, you know, I never talk about the clinical psychology is more about those disorder so yeah i didn't even know there was a difference in terms of the educational streams you could go yes. down so yeah
1: well this is i guess it, it's a bit contentious but there's not a huge difference we probably do maybe three or four subjects that are a little bit different so the clinical um uh, stream focuses a little bit more on pharmacotherapy um you know a lot more uh, probably an extra subject on assessment and diagnosis yeah. whereas we focus a little bit more on okay if someone's presenting they've lost a significant you know they've, they've lost a significant person in their life and they're experiencing grief how do we work with that um you know so it's just there's a lot of the core is the same but there's just a a few subtle differences Mm -hmm. um but now I think in Australia most of the programs are psychology moving a little bit more that way um sadly (laughs) in in some respects but um
0: and and do you have a particular interest in any type of grief like you know from debt or you know, breaking up with somebody or like whatever, like, do you have any sort of speciality or interest yourself?
1: Yeah, it was sort of, I guess, in doing that degree, I, I um, just became very interested in sleep. You know, we we had a two hour lecture in sleep and David Morowitz um, came in, who's a, a counselling psychologist, um, came in and kind of yeah, gave us a lecture and I sort of, instead of going down the more typical counselling psychology path, I went much more into sleep. So um, did a bit online, um, insomnia treatments. There was an e-therapy centre at, at Swinburne um, and also kind of um, insomnia clinic at Austin Health, did a placement there. So I sort of, I, I didn't kind of go the typical route and, and do more kind of of those relationship based or, or mm-hmm. and loss type of placements. I sort of went, hmm, I'm going to stick a little bit more to sleep.
0: Yeah, yeah. Which would which would have a lot of overlap anyway because in times of grief like your sleep would yeah. be completely yep. you know out of yep. control wouldn't it so yep. lots of lots of overlap um, yeah interesting and so you did psychology as undergrad as well
1: yes yes with that and uh, yeah I had my first uh, sleep project uh, during that with Christian um, uh, Christian over at Melbourne Uni. Christian Nichols. So um, he I think I was one of his first students going through a sort of a behavioral neuroscience subject and sleep. So we did a little project on the hyperarousal hypothesis of insomnia. Um, But yeah, that that degree, it's a little bit more behavioral neuroscience and psychology. And I went off and thought, I'm a bit sick of uh, studying. So I went off and worked in. a more organization so I did a recruitment consultant. Uh, then went and worked at uh, Department of Human Services for a few years, and then sort of cycled back um, to do my masters. So, yeah, sleep wasn't necessarily a straight linear path. It was a little bit of interest, and then go off yeah. and do a few other things, and it just kind of kept coming back. Um, especially- oh look,
0: it, I, it never is for anybody. <laughs> it never is for anybody. Like I think um, so. Cassie Hilditch, I spoke to her this morning in the States. She wanted to be a firefighter living on a farm. That was her original <laughs> plan. Um, Nicola Barclay in the who worked at Oxford, she wanted to own a, a cake shop. Mm-hmm. Uh, Siobhan Banks at UniSA was into theatre and drama and wanted to be an actor. Um, Brandon Marcello in the States who does a lot of stuff in recovery and sleep. He was doing a undergrad in theatre design. Uh I did my undergrad in adult education, but before that was in the military. Like so everybody comes from these mm-hmm. weird and wonderful backgrounds, which I think is really interesting because yeah. no one's on this, like, and I keep saying it every podcast, no one's sitting chewing their pencil looking out the window and going, Someday I'm gonna be asleep. sleep sort of yeah. this, like, it's not even anybody. <laughs> it's what, weird I dream about,
1: yeah. it's what I yeah.
0: I dream about sleep. So no one, no one's kind of heading on this uh, <laughs> on this direction. But um, yeah, it's 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 fascinating. I think what makes it, you know, really we can have some really fruitful discussions, you know, with with some different people. So I think this is really good. And I think what you're doing in this paper that we're going to talk about today is you're starting to connect dots out into some other areas where typically in the sleep science area, we don't really um, discuss these areas. And um, like I was saying to you before, uh, I have a separate podcast called Learning to Die, which is very much interested in philosophy, history, culture, um, you know, and so on. And the title is self-evident. It is about trying to live a better Life, so we can, you know, uh, die you knowing we've we've, you know, juiced all the the marrow of life that we can, um, but um, in this paper here, um, this strange dreams and pandemic dreams let's let's focus on to this so was this part of your phd research or something separate no
1: this was a, it was i guess a bit of a side project um i was doing i was doing my phd with melinda jackson um and we're sort of like watching this pandemic unfold and both thinking oh my god this is going to be such a massive sleep disruptor um out there in the world and we just we have to kind of study it and understand it so um and with the pandemic I was about to start rolling out a sleep education workshop to trainee psychologists and we just had a whole bunch of cancellations of the the universities going look we don't know what's happening yet we need to cancel and pause so we had a little bit of time to kind of just refocus and do this study so I call this my second PhD (laughs) so this was more we were really interested in kind of the You know, people having insomnia for the first time, and people clinically, I was seeing people that had already had sleep problems, it been getting a lot worse, and also a few people going, "Oh, this is great! I love lockdown. I'm sleeping much better." We were seeing kind of just a lot of strange things with sleep, and we started to—I think Melinda and I ourselves—we were going, "I'm having these really weird dreams and and all these things happening," and we started to hear a lot of media reports as well. So we—I mean, I think it was about a month—we got this study up and running and with pranavarma and Moira um, Junga as well, part of the original study team. And we just sort of, uh, you know, in, in three or four weeks, just kind of put together this study and included one question about dreams. And because we're not predominantly dream researchers, our question was a little bit different. We didn't use their sort of typical dream questionnaires, which kind of ask people, you know, Done studies before the pandemic, looking Mm. at kind of what types of dreams people normally have. Um, Being chased is is a big one. (laughs) Sex dreams as well is number two. Um, But we didn't ask things like that. We more were just asked an open ended, kind of more qualitative, descriptive question about you know, have your dreams. it changed since the beginning of the pandemic and if they have please tell us more about it so we sort of started from that perspective we just asked this question um and then some qualitative analysis on it because what we found was actually quite interesting
0: um now, now what's interesting before we get into the methods and results of this paper is that you know people would think and you've probably had this question as well when you give talks people would think that sleep scientists are experts in dreams and they don't really understand that the sleep science or the chronobiology is nearly a cold, harsh science, very akin to engineering, where it's fact and you know very objective measures, and we don't get into these subjective. Well, we do a little bit of subjective, like how do you feel, how refreshed, but mainly to kind of marry up or look at the disparity between objective data. But we don't do a lot of this qualitative research where we're looking at themes and outcomes and approaches that generally done in social sciences or even in psychology. We tend to shy away from that. So this is this is really a new kind of domain for sleep science or sleep scientists. Would you agree?
1: Yeah, I, I look, there has been a, 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 you know, a group of, pretty amazing researchers doing, you know, keeping up with the dream research. But when I've looked at, and and I know with the study when we tried to get some funding for it, some of the feedback was, look, don't look at dreams, you won't get funded for it. Mm -hmm. Because it's sort of that that idea that it's a bit of a pseudoscience, that it's, you know, it's not hardcore neurobiology or, you know, that we've got these, you know, really quantitative measures, which we can look at it. Um, So it is something that, you know, kind of, yeah, been left off to the side. you know, and the focus when, you know, I think researchers do look at it, it's more looking at REM sleep, so rapid eye movement sleep. And we know that's a stage of sleep where we do have more bizarre dreams and those sorts of things. But, yeah, the, the kind of the subjective experience and what people are actually kind of, you know, thinking and feeling and, and um, you know, imagining in their dreams, we don't really talk about it. Um, also clinically, you know, as a, I'm a psychologist that work in, works in a sleep disorder centre, And when I first started at Melbourne Sleep Disorder Centre, I remember sitting in on a patient with one of the doctors there and um, talking to a patient that was having nightmares. And the doctor asked me, you know, so from a psychological perspective, you know, what are the current theories about what dreams mean and all this sort of stuff and I kind of gave a bit of a blank look. I'm like I've got no idea we never covered this you know we really didn't talk much at all about dreams and it's sort of just something that you know yes people with depression might experience some more dreams and nightmares but never you know we we never really covered it in what we do about it and how we treat it Um, but there is I I think there's a lot to it um, that we you know still to be explored and there's some really great researchers I don't know if you've read the book When Brains Dream by no. um, Bob, uh, yeah, Bob Gold and Antonio Zadra. Um, it's it's awesome. Um, highly recommend if people are interested in dreams to, to get on it. It came out in 2020, I think. Um, but they are, uh, I think Antonio Zadra, he does a lot of research looking at nightmares, parasomnias, lucid dreaming, a lot more qualitative um, kind of data. And, and Bob Gold. he comes from more of a, I think it's uh, biochemistry, a lot more kind of you know, neurotransmitters and brain regions. Um, But he's also done a lot of looking at at dreams and how, you know, kind of REM sleep and memory during sleep and things. So um, Mm -hmm. there's there's definitely a few people that have been doing it for a while and and still do, but it's a very small community, I think, within the sleep field um, that that really kind of investigates dreams.
0: So interesting enough, it's time for me to confess, (laughs) Helly. As a good Catholic Boy, growing up, forgive me, father, for I have sinned. I have crossed over into the dream world already. Tongue in, <laughs> tongue in cheek. So I actually have written an essay called Death, Dreams and the Divine, which is currently oh, wow. in, in, in editing. And I give a lecture on this topic. It's something that's been kind of swirling around in my in my brain for a while. And I gave a lecture on a few months ago at a a sort of a private social club, you want to call that here in Perth. It wasn't the Illuminati. Um, <laughs> um, it was Illuminati, yeah. And. Um, and I give this presentation. I was uh, I'm going to go very kind of off the rails here, very esoteric in some ways. But I said, if you're willing to kind of have these challenging ideas, I'll do it. The lecture was for forty five minutes. I allowed fifteen minutes for Q and I thought I was going to get out of there in an hour and a half. Four hours later, I got out. People were absolutely fascinated by it. And so I'm uh, compl- I'm exploring this area of like like it says like dying dreams and the divine. This relationship with like a, a divinity. But, you know, you talk about dreams and research and a couple of things I found like research in this essay, and I've spoken to a few people about this. Uh, One is a guy called Dr. Christopher Kerr. Have you heard of him? Mm -hmm. He's written a great book called Death is But a Dream. Now, his research basically is about um, the dreams and visions that people have before they die. He works in a palliative care center and he's a a medical doctor, and he's written this great book on it, which is really interesting about the types of dreams that people have. However, when we dig more into dreams, like you were saying, it's interesting that we call it a pseudoscience. But the modern founder, I suppose, if you want to call it him that, of today's science was Rene Descartes, who basically used, you know, the integration of numbers to to show scientific, um, you know, evidence or theory. But what's interesting about this? And I'll just read this slightly little paragraph here. Read from it. Well, not exactly word for word, but he's the guy that came up with like "Cogito, ergo sum." I think therefore I am. Now he uses numbers in science, but do you know where he got that idea from? No,
1: a dream. I'm guessing. A dream
0: <laughs> and and more importantly, the dream was an angel who came from God who gave him this in- instruction and said to him that conquest of nature is to be a tree achieved through number and measure. Mm. So we're so quick to dismiss dreams and go. But look what happened here. The second best example is a guy called Ramanajan. I can't. Remember. I won't pronounce this right. I'm doing a man injustice. Sri S-R-I-N-I-V-A-S-A. Someone is roaring at this. Listening to me. Sri Nivasa Ramanujan. He was an Indian mathematician. There's a brilliant movie on him um, called "The Man Who Knew Infinity." Um, where um, Dev Patel plays him and this guy was around in the 20s and 30s this guy went to the, from, was taken from India and went to Cambridge where his mathematics right, were like crazy he had 3,900 results of his mathematical work and he, he died at 32 years of age in 1920 and a story was written on his life in 1991 called A Man Who Knew Infinity now He was asked, where does he get all his work from? Nearly 4,000 mathematical proofs. He said, it's not me. He said he credited this to a family goddess, an avatar of the god Vishnu in the Hindu tradition. He said he dreamt of blood drops symbolizing this god. He also reported visions of scrolls of mathematics and stated an equation has no meaning unless it expresses it's all from God. So it all came through his dreams. And these are still equations that we use in everyday life today. So it strikes me as somewhat fascinating that we dismiss all this as pseudoscience and we laugh about dreams. But then it's been so instrumental in the development of our culture in certain ways as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. And even I think the periodic table was um, came to uh, the, the developer in a dream. So, really? yeah. So it's sort of something that. You know, I think people find it really profound and they derive a lot of meaning um, from their dreams. But I I guess where science isn't quite there, we don't understand. Um, And, you know, whether, uh, you know, there is kind of meaning in dreams versus what the brain is doing and how it's integrating information that we have during dreams. That kind of gives you know gives us um, some insight into to where we go, so it's yeah it's I, I think there's still a lot of work to do in, in this space, mm. um, but it is one that, that people really connect with, and, and I think from this study saying um to you kind of before we started talking I, I've never had that much media interest in a research study that I've, I've done before
0: <laughs> yeah. you know
1: dreams really kind of it's it's something that everyone experiences and and has these cool experiences and or distressing experiences and want to understand so I think as a sleep community actually doing a little bit more work in this space can be a really great way to um, you know engage with the community mm-hmm. um, and also might further you know our understanding of sleep and and you know the reasons that we do it <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I I totally agree. So in in this um in this paper, you know, you you talk about this in you know that pandemic dreams are associated with increased death related content, mm-hmm. yep, lower positive emotional tone and higher negative emotional tone when compared to pre pre pandemic dreams. Mm-hmm. Interesting enough, when I spoke to Rachel Menzies, the author of Mortals, when I spoke to the people from the Ernest Becker Foundation, if you check out Sholom- S- Sheldon Solomon's work on the um. Terror management theory stuff, debt anxiety has actually got worse over the pandemic when we talk about it in this regard. So it's actually independent of dreams, it's actually it's actually got worse where we've been more confronted with debt. Um, and we would have thought that we would have become better at it. Now, recently as well, on my other podcast, Learn at to Die, we also interviewed a guy called Dr. She- Professor Seamus O'Matney, who's been involved on the Lancet Commission, which is a report on um th- the value of debt. And so it goes into lots of these is- issues as well. So lots of overlap, and so this is this is quite surprising. Um, were, you, were you surprised at this in terms of the background for for this paper?
1: Yeah. Uh, look, we were it was sort of a very exploratory study, and. Um you know, with this, we had it was 900 and something people who had described their dreams. So Baines, who's who was an intern in our lab, and I went through these 900 and something dream reports and sort of coming up with okay, how do these kind of fit together and what are the kind of the common themes and kind of underlying narratives within all these statements. And the, the death-related content, you know, we kind of quoted it as a sort of a survival theme in these dreams. You know, we saw a lot of people like they were having kind of it was really flight, flight, freeze response. You know, there was a lot of kind of wars, death, disaster, you know, kind of apocalypse type dreams, you know, kind of, again, really signaling people are scared for their safety, um, you know, that, that there is sort of real threats in in the world and this is kind of coming through into dream. Um, the death-related content, we saw a lot of people that were or we, we read a lot of these statements. They were talking about, you know, that they're dreaming about kind of, you know, loved ones that had already passed, you know, the, the thoughts of their own death or, or the death of people who were close to them. And also this kind of really touching in on, you know, people that were their loved ones and, and you know, think, dreaming about people that they can't access during the pandemic. So there were just these real kind of survival themes and, and death was really coming through as a, as a predominant one. Very interestingly, when we did some, um, so that was sort of our more qualitative analysis, but when we compared our groups with insomnia, so people, we had people that had insomnia before the pandemic, we had people who developed insomnia during the pandemic, we had good sleepers, so we had these three groups. When we compared um, kind of the, the words that they used to describe their changes in dreams, we found that our people who developed insomnia during the pandemic had more of these death-related dreams than the other groups. So it's sort of say, so, you know, people, they're, they're starting to sleep really poorly. We know that their, their stress and anxiety and depression levels were also higher. Um, but then they're reporting this real kind of many more kind of death-related themes than the other groups, which was quite interesting. Um, so it's sort of, I guess, how, you know, kind of poor sleep, you know, the body's in this real state of flight or fight. Um, and, and then, you know, the content that's coming through, you know, from their dreams is kind of, yeah, these you know, am I going to die? Is my family going to die? You, know, you can understand why they would be having a lot more of those experiences.
0: Yeah. This is this is really interesting. And again, this lines up with some of Christopher Kerr's work where people, when they're, you know, coming towards death, that they have these dreams and visions of actually loved ones um, before they die. And there's a book called Deathbed Visions that was written by a guy called William Barrett, who grew up in Jamaica. So this was back around... 1800s. And he was actually a friend of William James, the modern founder of psychology. And they founded, they founded like a lot of the, what are called psychical research societies in, in, in Europe and in in America. But William Barrow was ended up being a professor of physics back in Dublin. And he was really interested in this. And so people would have, you know, visions of of people who had passed or they would dream of people who had passed as they were approaching death. So it seems like in your work as well as even though these people weren't approaching death, the actual death anxiety that was exacerbated through media, which they wouldn't have had that media 100 years ago, you know, being in the forefront of their mind, really kind of for some maybe either protective mechanism or something else connected them with these people that had been gone. This is this is fascinating, isn't it?
1: Yeah, definitely. And, you know, we did see also some participants trying to make meaning from their dreams. They're trying to understand these experiences. And some did report, you know, that increased social media and just the reports, you know, all the the news-related death reports and all these sorts of things. They thought were triggering them. Um, But also, uh, you know, just... uh, it's sort of that you know as humans i think we've got this real desire to make meaning and to understand what's what's happening and sort of so this you know we had some participants kind of doing that more dream interpretation you know trying to understand mm. what what's going on and, and you know thinking that the, those dreams did have some kind of more prophetic meaning
0: so you did have like obviously a number of aims in this paper to look mm-hmm. at different things but then you had all of these um these uh, different dream experiences and kind of common themes that come out. Now, we could spend hours and hours talking about these different themes individually. Like, I was reading your paper again yesterday. And I was like, oh, God, this might take <laughs> me 10 hours because I could talk about just theme one, increased dream activity, for about two hours. But uh, um, I suppose before we move into these themes, with the death anxiety, just to finish off on that one, do you think this death anxiety and the dream and the relationship to dreams is, int- is, is related to personality type?
1: Oh, good question. I don't know. Um, we didn't look at personality type with with this, but you know, we did say, I guess, if we think of mental health, when higher stress, higher anxiety, um, be a little bit more related. So yeah, I I, I don't know. It would make, I guess, it intuitively makes sense. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's some research on it somewhere we could dig up. But yeah, uh, not. Um, Know from this particular, so,
0: yeah. Some of the common things, I, this is again just self reported from me. Some of the things that I noticed throughout the pandemic was people who, and this is very much generalization. So, people again will be screaming, going, What would you know? And I don't know. I'm just saying what I've seen. People who had experiences in their life that were very um confronting already maybe ex military, special forces, police, ambulance, whatever it might be people who have basically seen a lot, right? Um had a different perspective on life and valued each day. People who were very much about their own personal sovereignty or individual responsibility, very kind of very stoic in their views, would will say, um, very much like it's in my control. You know, I'm in control of this. Not, nobody's in control of me. Those people didn't seem to have that much fear, mm. I, I would think, during the pandemic. The people in there were more, we'll say, socialist in their views, um, hadn't been sort of maybe... Outside of their capital city, never mind their state or Australia or any other country, those people that hadn't traveled, hadn't seen, didn't know much, they tended to be, in my opinion, more fearful and more, you know, terrified. Whereas other people, like nearly every guy I know that's been in like the military in special forces, was like, I don't really care. Like, <laughs> you know, that's the real way. But people who had, you know, Worked maybe at a research institute, never left the state. We're like, oh, we're all going to die. <laughs> like, you know, there was those sort of like different responses to the same stimulus, which yeah. I found fascinating. so I often thought during the pandemic, is it related to personality types, is it related to education? But you could get two, pe- two people with a PhD in science that had two different opposite views yeah. on it. So yeah. there was like so many different variables that I was like, this is really fascinating to see the, the responses.
1: Yeah, it's sort of like that perception of a stressor, you know,
0: yeah
1: the, you know, we can both go through the same experience, but I might interpret it very differently. My stress yeah. would go off the charts and I can't sleep and do all these things. And you might be like, yeah, that's just a normal day in the office. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so yeah. so there is a lot there. And look, we did have a perceived stress um, measure in this study. And we did find that our insomnia groups had higher perceived stress than the good sleepers. And that's something that has been found, you know, previously that people that do experience um, insomnia have a higher perception of stress and threat, you know, that they're, they're more kind of sensitive to stress. So it, you know, and personality variables. I think the insomnia and personality literature is a bit mixed, um, but things like actually being more open to experience comes up, being more agreeable, um, a bit lower on extraversion, and also a little bit more, um, you know, emotional, a bit lower on emotional stability, um, or higher on neuroticism. Mm. I like <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so there definitely can be personality differences, and you know, I think in how people perceive, you know, how stresses are perceived. And, you know kind of that In psychology we're always thinking about you know when when doing some normal kind of cognitive therapy work with people you know do you is i guess do you perceive that this stressor is going to exceed your capacity to deal with it you know and so it's sort of often doing a lot of cognitive kind of work around okay um you know how else might you be able to cope with this are you kind of underestimating your resources you know both internal and external um are you potentially kind of um viewing this as more threatening than potentially what it is. So there's there's a lot of kind of in that how we perceive and, and our coping resources. Um, you know, are, are we equipped to deal with this stress mm. that's coming at us? And I'm guessing people in the military uh you know they've gone through a lot of a lot of training and also in terms of their selection in um you know to, to these jobs, you know, they've got to be people who can handle a lot of stress and a lot of uncertainty
0: yeah and even then within that then it differs because people who are in support roles in the military who don't really see combat generally have um, worse PTSD than those people who are in firefights because it, the, the people in the firefights are taking the fight to the enemy where the other people are basically in a rear base being attacked with no control yes. so it's very it's very interesting when you start breaking those down again so yeah and again it depends on on yeah, people
1: you know, yeah the yeah, control aspect of yeah that. your
0: locus of control you know it gets back into kind of stoic philosophy as well but very interesting. I think it's so hard to tease out different sort of approaches for people, and sort of and so. And I don't think it's just linked to introvert introverts or extroverts. It's it's a complicated. Experience. It's so complicated, yeah. But <laughs> that could be that could be a whole podcast in itself. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um. So, Haley, you've got all these. You've got like four or five Ms here in this mm-hmm. paper, and then you've got all the themes underneath them, and there's reams and reams of themes. So, <laughs> let, let's be let's be. I'm going to be guided by you. Where? Do, how do you want to summarize yes. this? How do you want to dig into what you found here? Because. um so many different things. We just spoke about that anxiety for like a hundred and a half yes. an hour. So we can, like, yep. we'll have yep. to really quickly get through these. Yeah, well, <laughs> well
1: probably the, 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 you know, I mean, thematic analysis, we're not supposed to talk about the number of kind of uh, people that endorsed these themes, but I'll, I'll break the mold a little bit and say, you know, the, the, the strongest theme that we had was an increase in dream activity. So the people, you know, instead of kind of comparing dream reports, you know, from pre-pandemic to to now we're asking them how have your dreams changed and you know I think it was you know 700 and something out of 900 and something people all said I've had an increase in dream activity so this can be things like you know I'm just having more dreams you know I feel like I'm dreaming more frequently they're lasting for longer Um, so that was really the strongest thing that out we also
0: can i ask you a question on that so so would that be potentially because we hear people saying that during the pandemic they slept more because they had more less commute time you know they were more in control would this potentially be rem rebound because they had left they had left out well sorry they had lost out on rem sleep over time and so they were making up for for it
1: I think in part, um, we we did see that and we we had participants reporting that. So we did have a little theme about um is this potentially a, a recall bias, mm. um, you know, where people are you know, they've got some more time in bed. I remember one quote, it was like, yeah, I've got more time now. So I wake up and I take time to ponder and think about my dreams. So, you know, sleep extension, you're kind of sleeping longer, having more REM sleep and therefore waking up out of that, you remember your dreams more and lying there thinking about what all this means. So that definitely I think would be something. But the other part of it is we had a big chunk of um, participants with insomnia who are not necessarily sleeping more, they're having more fragmented sleep. Or disturbed sleep. Hmm. And there's this idea um, that, you know, if we wake up directly out of a, well, it's it's based in research, but if we wake up after having a a dream, we're more likely to recall it. So if people with insomnia have a little bit more unstable REM sleep, wake up more often out of REM, they're more likely to recall it. Um, And without having a lot of great, good quality REM sleep, they're often more kind of high stress, higher anxiety the next day. So I think that kind of sleep extension is part of it for some participants but I also think having more fragmented and broken sleep could be another part of it mm. um, and without sometimes having to get up super early in the morning you, you sort of your sleep's a bit more consolidated when it's into you know you've got it in this short period of time but when you can sleep in get up wherever you want you'll also have a bit more fragmented sleep so I think it yeah a lot of the the routine sleep wake kind of routine changes around the pandemic could definitely be, be playing a big role but also the high levels of anxiety, um, as well. Kind of, it's sort of a, a perfect storm. <laughs>
0: perfect storm. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So that was the, that was the main theme you found coming through. So the increase in dream activity. Yeah. What, what was the What was the next one after
1: The next one we called it high definition dreams. So I remember reading these dream reports, and people are just sort of like, "Oh my god, they're so my dreams are more colourful, they're more vivid. Mm. Um, you know, I've got more there of these sensory experiences, like I." one dream report they're like I, i'm dreaming about someone smoking tobacco i can smell it i can it's like i'm there yeah, yeah. you know it's or i'm cooking and i can i can you know i can see the i can see the ingredients in all their colors i can smell them i can feel them so really it got sort of all these, these heightened somatic kind of qualities to the dreams so we called it it was sort of like you know uh, i think during the pandemic we got a new tv it was going from like kind of the older standard definition to like this whiz bang high definition um, TV and that's kind of what we were seeing in his dreams it's just everything was kind of you know on steroids in a way it's much more colourful vivid bizarre um so this sort of just this qualitative difference in kind of these memorable qualities in people's dreams that's one of the, the the next kind of thing that we really saw was that people just you know dreams seem much more remarkable and in high definition than pre-pandemic Um, When we think about why, you know, there's definitely a part in when everyone's talking about their dreams, you know, we're a bit biased to kind of go, oh, yeah, I had this dream and, yeah, totally, Mm. it was much more colourful and bizarre and vivid. So there can be definite elements of this recall bias that might be going on. Um, But there's some kind of models of dreaming, and and this is one where if you ever have David Cunnington on on the podcast getting him to talk about um, this A model of dreaming, where it's sort of like this idea that increasing monoway means and stress hormones we get a lot more of these bizarre and vivid kind of dream experiences. So, you know, higher stress, high causal, you know, all this sort of stuff leads our brain to just have these much more kind of vivid, you know, bizarre kind of quality in our dreams. So that's something that we definitely did see coming through in participants' kind of dream reports. Um, which was really interesting. And, and you know, it was kind of, it's one of those things doing this study. It was, I think it's the most fun I've ever had doing a, a research study in terms of data analysis and just reading kind of what, what people had had written about their dream experiences. Just, yeah, some some really interesting, unique, you know, scary kind of heartwarming. It was just, you know, every mm. emotion under the sun kind of coming through in the dreams.
0: Now, you also had a theme here, which might be related to this, which was like negatively charged. Yeah. Yep. So this was like the more the bad dreams and the nightmares and so on, Um, what was going on here?
1: Yeah, so um, definitely whilst we did have some positive dreams, it was sort of our last category, (laughs) Um, overwhelmingly they they had a real negative charge. So people reporting increase in nightmares and bad dreams. So nightmares and bad dreams we didn't have a nice way of really kind of characterizing them in this study whereas other other research studies would characterize a nightmares you know this really kind of frightening Um, content of which you wake up out of, whereas a bad dream, it's sort of, you know, it's negative, but you don't necessarily wake up. So there's some, I guess, different researchers kind of categorise bad dreams and nightmares a little bit differently. Whereas, you know, if people said, I'm having more nightmares, we coded that as a nightmare. Whereas if they talked more about just these dreams that had kind of more negative kind of themes, we would code that as a bad dream. Um, So we saw just an increase in both, really. Um, you know, people just saying I'm having much more nights than normal. Um, We saw, again, kind of um, when we kind of looked at our our groups, more people with insomnia are also having more nightmares, potentially relating to that waking up more out of REM sleep. Um, But this is something that, you know, it's not just us that that observe this. Um, There's been quite a few other pandemic research studies that really have kind of reported this in nightmares and bad dreams during the pandemic and also from other times you know when there's been the 9-11 terrorist attacks um kind of you know after world war ii kind of really experiencing an increase in nightmares after kind of real significant stressful worldwide events
0: yeah in my head i'm thinking about i don't know do you know know much about terror management theory
1: Mm -mm, nope
0: they have a, these guys have a book called the worm at the core and this is one of the most highly replicated subjects or areas within psychology which is about this and, and and now i think what you're kind of unpacking here or showing is that basically that your data lines up with your that that people who have anxiety during the day from these things like 9/11 or these other things or the pandemic or even the gfc you know these three major milestones that i would have seen in my life um, it's interesting because not only does it affect them during the day, it's affecting their sleep as well, which I don't think anybody's really shown. But what's interesting is in this one here about this negatively charged one, and I presume these are quotations in the paper. So this yes. one here says, "Though I, though I have always had bad dreams, those dreams have gotten worse, maybe because of the ghost rumors yeah. around." What's the ghost rumors?
1: Oh, look, I had to do some Googling and couldn't find it. One of the, the challenges with this study, we did have a, a global sample. So yeah. we have people from 67 countries, um, you know, so we don't know what those ghost rumours were. Um, and it's something that, like, you know, we think different cultures, you know, hearing different things happening. Um, but, yeah, I, it was a participant from the Philippines. Um, but, yeah, I couldn't kind of locate what these ghost rumours made. Um
0: Again, I'm thinking here about Christopher Kerr's work and some other stuff on this, and you know, this death is but a dream. And I wonder, even if when people are starting to see the end or they're thinking of the end of their life, does these things become more and more prevalent in their day to day? Yeah,
1: it's a it's a great question. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it again intuitively it makes sense, and um, you know, I, I'll have to look to the literature a little bit more to see what, what's there, but it's it's so um, it's so interesting, and you know.
0: so, I, I, The more the more I look at this paper, and the more I talk to you, Hallie, There's a big death anxiety running for the back <laughs> yes. of this, like because the, the, the in this whole area here of like the next one is survival mode. I'm just yep. looking at, and you got the flight freeze response, you got mortality. Dreams of loved ones again, um, family who live far away, um, family member survival. It's there's a lot of dead anxiety in yep. the back of this paper. because it's it's really strong.
1: Maybe I need to have a chat with Rachel Menzies.
0: <laughs> I, I think I think I think you should. I think I think I I really do. Um the bad part is that you actually look quite alike. Did you know that? You both I'll have <laughs> blonde hair and glasses. So you actually look you actually look very similar. <laughs> so um <laughs> so um you, you could be the uh, the deadly duo of, the, de- 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 of, of deadly the death anxiety duo, and it. dreams <laughs> area. Yeah, but well, I, I really do think you should talk because uh, there is such a death anxiety theme running in the back of this paper. And the more I talk to you, the more I think it's here. Like, so yeah, you had this mortality one and dream, dreams of loved ones. So yeah, do you have any comments on 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 the survival mode one?
1: Yeah, we well, just you know, it, it, I think like the the real fear in people's dreams really did come through. And what was interesting, I think the next theme think, is the kind of COVID um, pandemic-specific kind of themes. Yeah. But what, you know, and, and what a, this has been a finding from other pandemic dream research, the the kind of the fear and survival kind of themes within the dreams, they weren't necessarily specifically about the pandemic. They were in general, you know, kind of that being chased, being attacked, mm-hmm. kind of tsunamis, wars, you know, other types of disasters, you know, this Particular study we were running, this baseline was in April 2020. So it was quite kind of early on in the pandemic. And we weren't seeing as many of these COVID themes coming through as potentially some of these dream studies that have uh, continued on a little bit longer, um, you know, kind of capturing those dream experiences where they're seeing more flowing from, you know, masks, you know, people wearing PE and masks and kind of, you know, concerns about, you know, being infected and those things. There was, you know, the, you know, that that underlying fear and, and survival instinct was there, but it wasn't necessarily a pandemic-specific dream. They could mm-hmm. be much more general, and to, to what we see in kind of pre-pandemic dreams, um, you know, just kind of being physically assaulted and being chased, all those sorts of things.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating, and so um. With these bad dreams, and as well, was there any increase in things like uh sleep paralysis? And the reason I asked that yeah. is I just got a I just got a great book that are there in the post yesterday. I was away for the last two weeks by Brian Sharpless, um called Sleep Paralysis on seen it. Um, I just had a flick through it yesterday and I picked up at the post office, just put up there in a the bookshelf. But this sleep paralysis is interesting because in that essay that I've been working on about um death, dreaming and divine. There's obviously a whole issue around sleep paralysis in different cultures, like in Newfoundland, they call it the hag. I think in um, the Caribbean, they call it the cockma. Um, and so it's it obviously, you know, when we talk about demons and ghosts, it comes in two forms, like the succubus or incubus for male and female. It's this figure sort of sitting on someone's chest, taking the life out of them. Um, you've got this sudden death syndrome that happens in around Lao as well, where people feel like the breath has been taken out of their chest. But it's generally related to dreams, and um, and so I'm just wondering with all this stress and anxiety and debt around, what were, were was this sort of para insomnia increased as well?
1: Yeah, we did see that. We had, I think we did have some budding sleep scientists within our our sample as well. But people, so people would actually call out and say, "I'm having more sleepwalking, sleep terrors." Mm. Um, uh, you know, even I think someone did use the words sort of hallucinations and things, but we also had people describing the phenomenon. You know, I've i sort of woken up with this weird sense that I can't move. Mm-hmm. You know, so we did see that that peak as well, which we you know we do know that people have more parasomnias. You know, if they're so predisposed um, in times of stress and, and anxiety. So yeah, it we, we was a it was, did come out as a theme um, as well.
0: So. I'm gonna go I'll really. I might, I might start going really esoteric here. That's <laughs> fine. So, are are you familiar with Carl Jung's work around dreams and dream interpretation? That Carl Jung, the scientist or philosopher scientist, psychologist, whatever you want to call him? Uh,
1: I wouldn't say I haven't uh, looked at it very recently.
0: <laughs> so obviously so... he's he's spoken about like the collective on the collective consciousness. So, and this kind of goes across into what people might call hindra's net in Hinduism and Buddhism. Like you know, this kind of really invisible net all around. The world which people who have psychedelic experience report seeing Which is very interesting there's a whole heap of research happening in that area as well but do you think maybe that these fears or if we talk about if we take it to be true that these dreams are let's say vehicles for information to us in the examples I gave earlier on and Descartes and the Indian mathematician let's just say that that well I hypothesize here that this is basically you know a vehicle for getting information, would it be possible then that the collective consciousness is uploading all this anxiety and it's been re- coming down basically again in, in, in terms of dreams for people? With like what's your thoughts on that? Oh
1: gosh, that's are that big in, one a, in, a, in a weird
0: way, yeah. <laughs> yeah but again, this, is, this, is, this isn't the ASA, so you can say what yeah. you like,
1: <laughs> <laughs> I don't watch what I say, but. I don't know, like the collective consciousness sort of idea, you know, there was, there's a dream researcher, um Tor Nielsen, and he reported this, called it a dream surge, you know, that, that this kind of, this experience, like everyone's going through the same thing, you know, sort of the pandemic, although people's situations were different, you know, whether you were, you know, upper class, lower class, mm-hmm. um you know, you had a job on, or not, you weren't protected necessarily from the pandemic. Everyone had, you know, increasing levels of, of worry, and and you know, you know, we saw in our in our study, you know, um, about forty five percent of people having these strange, weird dreams. So it's sort of like it's definitely a uniting factor. Um, you know, we're sort of all in this together. Um, whether you know, kind of, or you know, what it means, collective consciousness. I that I am not sure of. You know, there, there's. Going back to sort of you know some of the more Freudian kind of ideas about dreams that they're repressed wishes and you know to our deepest desires kind of coming through that's too you know too scary for us to kind of look at um, the day there's sort of not a, you know there's not much research kind of going through to support those ideas you know compared to the other end of the spectrum which is more kind of the activation synthesis models which is more that dreams mean nothing they're just random firings of our brainstem and our, our prefrontal cortex is trying to put it all together and just make sense of it you know i think we kind of fall somewhere in the middle i i, I don't i don't know if there's enough data to, to talk about you know whether our dreams have meaning you, you know mm-hmm. they're, they're kind of meaning for that collective consciousness or you know that they're prophetic in any way um but you know individuals you know it's how we sometimes put that meaning to and and it's an opportunity for learning and you know the idea that when we when we dream our brain you know it's kind of our prefrontal cortex is really kind of you know it's it's not um, operating as it does during the day so we've got more of this opportunity for our brain to put together these associations loose associations um you know kind of things that happened to us long ago that we've you know consciously forgotten about but our brain is going okay something stressful is happening I need to sift through all these networks and find out you know what's going on so I can kind of work out how I feel and what I'm going to do moving forward you know I think there's a lot to that sort of that idea Um, you know that that you know kind of it's it's a way for our brains to kind of make sense and, and to you know kind of put our experiences um, into context and work out how we go forward you know I think a lot of the work um, kind of Bob Stickgold and Antonio Zadra, are doing they've got a model which is called the next up and it's kind of it's quite new um, but it's this idea that our you know our brains are really trying to explore associations and and kind of you know make sense of what's happening to us.
0: I, I I would totally agree with that because I've often thought to myself that it's basically our brain is to use modern languages like machine learning. It's yes. taken into, you know, our past experiences, our current experiences, and then it's trying to make sense of those to predict out for the future. And I think in some ways, that's how we, you know, we go, oh, I dreamt this was going to happen or deja vu. And maybe there is some sort of psychic ability in that. Now, whether that's happening by some sort of divine intervention, whether it's some collective consciousness, whether it's some external input or output or whether it's just a force of, um, in a very cold scientific way, it's just basically looking at all those variables. So, you know, if we can do this in terms of AI or sort of online, why can't we do it, you know, in terms of our brands and we're quite, you know, highly complex machines in in terms of that way. Um, so I think that's that's exactly what it is. That has to be a function of a house, how, how that's being done. I don't know. It's a bit like, I suppose, like when you look at creation and science, people go, well, <laughs> this is just all scientifically, you know, proven. And people go, yeah, but God did it. So it's like, it's that kind of same thing as well. Like who, who actually, who's, who or how is doing it? But the other thing on this, what you just said there about the, about the, the dreams there, Haley, do you know if any of this research has been done in something like military, where there would be um, experiencing that sort of heightened anxiety? Um, And I, that's the only kind of example, I can think at the moment, or maybe frontline police officers. Where, a
1: great question.
0: Because that would be a nice kind of correlation to see. Maybe that could be our study. Me, you and yeah. could do that study, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Because that oh, would be interesting be to see. Like, because if it is this kind of like, you know, tsunami wave of the pandemic coming at people, so it would be very interesting to see about maybe new police officers, new military people going, or even if they were just not new, but maybe had gone to an area where it was high crime or had gone into a military, um, you know, what you might call like a, a theater of war so then there's a kind of ramp up do people have the same responses because of the stimulus regardless of the training
1: yeah great question I look what well, I don't know too much I know they did um sort of dream research on on kind of I think first responders after
0: 9-11
1: mm. some things um and sort of seeing uh you know kind of a lot of kind of 9-11 imagery and things in dreams, and that you know people who kind of continue to have a lot of these dreams would have higher rates of depression and things down the track. You know, so there's definitely, um, you know, I guess in these sort of times of disasters and wars and earthquakes where they've looked at, at, I think some of the first responders. But I don't know if any of this has really been done in that sort of setting, just you know, kind of people embarking on, the, on their careers and, and looking at the changes from pre to post in terms of their dreams and, and sort of you know who goes on to continue having these you know uh, you know dreams that that might be more stressful and death related um versus you know people who you know their dreams change and there's a bit more mastery or empowerment and things in their dreams as, as they move forward um there's one interesting study it's totally not about military people but one interesting study which looked at Kind of depression in in um, kind of women post divorce and having a look at what mm. you know whether their dreams predicted kind of you know their recovery, and they found that that for women who had more dreams where they kind of bit more power dreams about how they stood up to their ex husband and you know these things uh, actually had lower rates of depression moving forward than women who continue to have kind of dreams where that where kind of their ex husband had power, you know. So so this idea of kind of you Know within your dreams, actually kind of being a bit in charge and having mastery and, and having some control and some power may actually be a little bit protective in terms of kind of the mental consequences, um, you know, of, of nightmares yeah. uh, post. So, yeah,
0: so this is a bit like uh, you might be too young to remember this, but do you remember in the 80s there was movies called Nightmare on Elm Street? I've heard it. I haven't
1: seen it, I don't think. Yeah.
0: So they were like the most scary things ever in the yeah. 80s, Freddy Krueger, you know. Yeah. Um, um, and so I remember when I watched the first one, I was about maybe 11, which I wasn't supposed to watch. And I was like, that isn't even that scary. I was gone, and I really wasn't put off by it. Yeah, I get more put off by Irish myth- mythology than anything else. That scares the shit out of me. Um, But in that as well, that was a kind of a central theme to like being attacked in your dreams by this demon or Fre- this guy, Freddy Krueger. But one of the main things in that, Johnny Depp was actually in those movies when oh, he was young. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> before he wasn't on heaps of coke. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but that was a kind of a theme of that dream. was. It? So yeah. you said that was about empowering and they'll fight back Freddie in these dreams, you know. And I think um, I only saw bits of this on Gogglebox. There's Stranger Than Fiction, uh, the show on Netflix. I think they go into some sort of like meditative state or it's not dreams, but this is where the fight people as well. Um, I watched the first season and I was like, "Oh, I can't do any more of this." Um, and
1: they've got um the Kate is it the Kate Bush song that's got got all popularity. That's from, right, yeah, yeah.
0: Let's come back <laughs> as well. They're running
1: yeah. on, yeah,
0: <laughs> running up that hill, yeah,
1: yeah, running up that yeah. hill. That's it. Yeah,
0: yeah. we're talking yeah. about my my playlist of my childhood now, Um, <laughs> <laughs> um so. Yeah, and so it's interesting that the dreams can be used as a vehicle to for empowerment. But is it that they get empowered during the day and the dreams are reflective, or you can merely use it as like lucid dreaming where you can use that then to, to empower yourself for the daytime activity? Or is it both?
1: Well, it's like this. so there is kind of, I guess, the use of, of kind of these changing dreams and you know uh, of therapeutic techniques like imagery rehearsal therapy and even lucid dreaming therapy for people who have nightmares um, and part of that treatment is to you know I guess in imagery rehearsal therapy it's it's one it's kind of you know there's a lot of education that this dream has just got a bit you know people have repetitive nightmares this dream's just got a little bit stuck maybe it served a function initially but it's mm. just kind of become a bit of a broken record so let's see if we can kind of come up with either an alternate ending or even just make some changes within the dream. Can we change the background? Can we change the person? Can we change the object? Can we find that kind of hot spot within the dream, you know, where it turns from just a dream into a nightmare? And can we kind of consciously during the day practice this, kind of write out a new script, um, you know, so that, it, you know, we're not as fearful of it. You know, we've got a bit more mastery over it and we hopefully see that to kind of translate into the dream and there is um you know there is some decent evidence about it you know exactly what it is and what component of it is it that we're you know a bit of exposure you're rehearsing this dream during the day therefore it's kind of like exposure therapy with a spider you know if you kind of slowly slowly you know you see a picture of a spider then you're in a room next door to the spider and you're slowly moving towards yeah, being yeah. in a room and touching that spider same kind of idea, exposure therapy, that nightmare. Does it lose a bit of its sting? Um, or is it, you know, that mastery component? You know, I can actually change this. I've got some power over what's happening in my dream and therefore um, this isn't so scary anymore and therefore, you know, you're not getting that feedback loop and sort a reduction in, in their nightmare frequency. So there's, you know, there's definitely something to these they they you know especially even do rehearsal therapy has you know some decent kind of randomized controlled trials and things now and they are being used uh, for people with ptsd nightmares and all these sorts of things Mm. um you know and once people are sleeping better there's that positive flow and effect to mental health too so i think there's definitely something to it um for sure
0: yeah i think i think that's interesting about the exposure therapy yeah because it's so it's so true yeah you know you think about things you were afraid of as a child and then you gradually got used to them you know and you you move people along and like you're saying could be near to it beside it touch it pick it up whatever it might be you know it's um you know when we we conquer those fears or we do those things are so empowering you know and i think it's really important for us i think actually like i've said this in other things as well on, on the learning to die and other stuff as well we're way too soft We're just way too soft as a human species and we're way too spoiled. I know I am anyway. I'm way too spoiled. So I'm always trying to find ways to put myself out of my comfort zone physically or cognitively to try and push myself because I'm terrified of getting too soft. And the older I get, the softer I get. And I don't like it. But I also like my comfort as well. (laughs) So it's kind of like (laughs) Like the the, the, the pandemic tracksuit. Yeah. 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 yeah, That's right. Yeah. The The pandemic tracksuit. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it, it's really important. But um coming back to your study here, Haley, you have a figure where basically what you're describing is basically as the as the pandemic went on from baseline in over 12 months, the the new the new onset insomnia, the pre existing insomnia and the good sleepers, the the percentage of dream changes like it went down over time. So in practical terms, then we could probably hypothesize from from this data that when future global crises hit, that this is going to be an issue for people. It's going to be a bit of bit of angst in terms of their dreams and these themes, you know, may, may re-emerge or, you know, reoccur for people. So what can we do in the future then as practitioners to basically lessen the impact of these negative dreams for people?
1: Great question. And from that study, we saw this real significant drop off in people reporting these kind of strange and distressing dreams at the three-month mark um you know so it's one of those things sometimes just having that that knowledge this is normal this is happening around the world you know and likely it's going to subside for the majority of people um Mm. you know once you've kind of had a bit more exposure to it time to wrap your head around it these dreams are actually helping potentially to to make you know, to help with understanding and kind of help your brain cope with what's going on. Um that yeah, for most people they will settle down. And so we don't necessarily need to, you know, kind of get too too worried about them. Mm. Um, so I think that's kind of one of the biggest takeaways for a lot of people, um, you know, it's kind of this too shall pass. Mm. Um, we're going to, to some more Buddhist philosophy. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, that that idea. But I think as well from this, um, you know, it's not in this paper. It's another paper coming looking at at the pandemic and what people are using to treat sleep problems and these sorts of things. We know that, you know, for I think it's about for 75% of people, um, you know, they have acute time of stress, experiencing insomnia. 75% or so of people will kind of go back to sleeping normal That stress slides. You know, so for most people, this will get better. There is a chunk of people, maybe 25%, that go on to have some more persistent sleep problems. Um, this is a study by Michael Perlis and, and um, Jason Ellis where they kind of tracked people once they develop insomnia and then kind of what happens to them. And you know, with about sort of I think it's six or seven percent kind of developing more of a chronic insomnia problem.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And what we we've seen from our data, which will hopefully be coming later this year is that, you know, people's go-to is to do nothing, you know, uh, you know, this is too hard, I can't, you know, just just do nothing, to use kind of really non-evidence-based treatment. So, you know, you kind of Google how do I sleep better, I'll get some, um, you know, I don't know, I'll I'll go to the pharmacy and I'll get some valerian and I'll get some other things which you know they've got a little bit of evidence but they're definitely not treatment for chronic insomnia um or you know they'll they'll kind of um listen to binaural beats and other relaxing music and things which you kind of you know kind of make sense but they don't you know can help you know with a, a night of poor sleep from now and then but they don't treat a chronic sleep problem whereas what we saw in our data the overwhelming thing is that you know only a handful of our more than two thousand participants kind of accessed cognitive behavioral therapy which is you know first line treatment um you know people are using everything else before they're getting to to cbti so it's sort of this idea that if if i think You know, for most people, sleep will settle down. You don't need to do a lot. But if it's kind of going two, three months on and you're still having problems with sleep, insomnia, or nightmares, then it's time to reach out and look for evidence-based treatment. Mm -hmm. And if we as healthcare professionals, I'll tie back in my PhD here, if healthcare professionals are better trained to assess, diagnose, and to manage sleep problems, we can patch them a lot earlier um, rather than kind of people kind of waiting five, 10 years to finally get through to a specialist sleep clinic where the sleep problem has become a lot more entrenched harder to treat um then you know kind of if we got them three months when they were still having this you know we could kind of get this fixed up a lot better so I think you know the, the message is that we really need to do a lot more to, to help get people access to evidence treatments if they are continuing to have sleep problems kind of in you know, three months onwards from, from whatever this event is we can kind of triage know people get better great you're good um but let's get needed um kind of proper treatment
0: and Haley, during the pandemic we we saw you know people like we said responded in different ways to the dreams but we also saw people responding in different ways during the day we saw some people lose a ton of weight, start running get really fit went oh now I don't have to be around people. I don't have to go to those work drinks. I'm not going to get pressured to, to pressurized to, you know, go to all these social things. And some people just like, I, mean, I know one person lost about 15 kilos, not from an increase in exercise, but just was like, oh, I'm not going to those Friday drinks, or those Saturday, <laughs> Suarez at someone's house. Yeah, where
1: all like, the all birthday cakes. Yeah, yeah. cheese cheese and
0: crackers. The whole, and it's like, oh, wow, that's actually a lot of calories I've consuming that I don't really need. And then we saw other people go the opposite where we saw alcohol sales go through the roof, you know, and <laughs> I I always think it's funny as someone, well, not funny, I think it's actually quite sad and, and quite shitty, really, that in a lot of countries that we close gyms and pools and stop people exercising, but we didn't close bottle shops and access to alcohol. I thought it was just from a public health message and it was absolutely bonkers, right, for us to do that in, in many countries, you know? Um, so it was crazy. So how, how much do you think, basically, that maybe... Increase alcohol use, lack of activity was playing into these dreams as well, if any, if any.
1: Yeah, look, we, we haven't looked at it for dreams, but I can talk to, we looked at it for people who developed acute insomnia. So kind of in kind of meeting kind of criteria for insomnia, but a duration of less than three months. In our sample, we actually found the opposite that uh, kind of decreased um, Alcohol consumption predicted more insomnia. <laughs> um, we De- make cre- sense.
0: So let's so just yeah, say that again. De- let's just say a decreased alcohol consumption increased yep. insomnia.
1: Yep, which we think so, is well, a someone's gone
0: good... out to buy a bottle of vodka now. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> which no, we were saying, don't do that don't do that um but our sample because we were worldwide sample and we had a lot of participants from South Africa and India in South Africa they had a ban on alcohol consumption ah. so you couldn't go out and buy it um so you know and the kind of high high distress, we, our, our participants from South Africa were more, uh, I guess, the highest distress levels of all of our participants. You know, that their lockdowns were extreme and, you know, kind of not access to yeah. do the normal things. So one, you know, other people that maybe could drink as a way to kind of relieve some of that that stress, although not ideal, um, you know, we saw that opposite pattern. And in India, there were a lot of um, access issues. So kind of supply chain breakdown and things So you couldn't actually get alcohol very easily within that country. So I think our data is a little bit different because it was a big global sample. Whereas I know a lot of other data, especially in Australia, saw a big increase in, in alcohol consumption and, and kind of worse mental health things. Hmm. So um, from an acute insomnia perspective, we saw that. We also saw um, changes in sleep-wake patterns played a really big role in the development Mm. of insomnia. Um, So this was something like even once we controlled for stress, um, you know, other mental health factors, people who kind of changed their sleep-wake patterns went more irregular or more late, you know, kind of more delayed when perhaps that wasn't their kind of tendency normally had a lot more of an increase in, in insomnia symptoms. So that kind of message around the importance of keeping regular sleep weight patterns, you know, uh, you know, stay off your devices as well. We yeah. saw a bit of an increase, people using um, increasing social media use, technology use before bed also was a significant predictor of acute insomnia. Um, so, yeah, some of those behavioural things around kind of keeping regular patterns, you know, device use, don't do it too close to bed, that sort of stuff can definitely be helpful. And I would imagine, you know, we'd, we'd see a similar thing for dreams as well.
0: Very mm, interesting. So Haley, from this work, this awesome paper, which is free and open access, yes, which I always like, because then we can communicate out to many yep. people. So this paper has been published, we'll put in the show notes as well. And so it is published in the Journal of Sleep Research, and it's open access. Um, and it was published in June this year. So this is a, this is a great paper. So um, are you going to continue dream research from here on in? Is it something now that's kind of fascinated you from this? Are you going to keep going on this on this topic?
1: Yeah, I, I definitely do, and I'm really interested in it. From I guess the our, the link between dreaming and insomnia, um, it's just it's something that was kind of coming through in, in the paper so strongly, um, and I think you know there, there's more research happening which is looking at kind of uh, you know instability within REM sleep. Um, And kind of that being a factor for the development of insomnia, whereas, yeah, a lot of people aren't coming out and looking at what is the the kind of, you know, the qualitative components of the dreams that people are having. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, you know, I guess coming from a counselling psychology background, I'm really interested in some of this more qualitative search and understanding these kind of components, not just from that kind of brain basis, but from that kind of subjective experience. So I hope so. <laughs> I just say uh, I guess gotta find someone to fund me to do it. So if anyone out there is listening and, and wants to put some funding to these studies, we can definitely do them. <laughs>
0: hang, hang on after this call. Um, <laughs> so the other question then is is there is is there any dream research labs in Australia? Because I'm not I'm not familiar with any, is there?
1: No, no, much more the States and Europe um, kind of places to be. Um, Canada as well, um, Montreal, they've got um, sort of a a dream lab. I know uh, in the States so at Harvard, they've got um, quite a couple of different dream researchers there. Also in Mississippi, they've got a a sort of a suicide um, and mental health lab, and they do a lot of dream research as well. Um, so, yeah, there's America, uh, uh, Canada, <laughs> definitely places to be to do a bit more of this work. I think in Australia um, at the Woolcock they're doing a little bit more on kind of more REM sleep stability yeah. stuff stuff, um, not so much on dreams but having a look a bit more at insomnia and, and um, kind of REM instability and things and mental health. So, so yeah, there's definitely a, an opening for people to do a bit more dream research um, in Australia if we can. Can get get uh you know get get our act together and get something going
0: <laughs> it's very interesting so um when you finish your phd how much longer to go because oh, you're working as well you, which is always
1: you, you us, shouldn't
0: always ever out. to ask a phd student that question do you, know, <laughs> do you know do you know do you know when i i when i remember i did my phd full-time so i like i, I left i left work because i was like yeah. i did have a go at a part-time and it is hard because you're doing yours part-time yeah yeah And working it was extremely difficult so hats off to you for doing that so I, I remember doing that. And then within about six months, people were like, so are you finished? I'm like, what <laughs> is it six months? And after you, you finished, and then, then I started asking people, okay, how long do you think it takes to do a PhD? And I had anything from six months,
1: <laughs>
0: six months, right, yeah. right, to six years. Wow yeah so yeah six months I was like what do you think this is yeah you know (laughs) it's not a TAFE course like you know it's
1: finished in in six months so was it a PhD I don't think
0: so yeah I think if you come Um, in under three years you would be doing well like you're you're, you're flying you know so but yeah so I it is the it is the bad question to ask but um, where, where are you on the journey
1: I am so I finished all my data collection um we so last study was um how many do you have in the end we've got uh, a study with about 300 um provisional psychologists going through sleep psychology training and I'm a co proponent of that's a wait list that's all there ready for me to do the final write-up um I'm debating whether I just do go back and and finish it off full-time and get it done in six months so if I do that then yeah yeah. uh, yeah, six months if not a a year or so I think if I keep going part-time so it, it's, it's definitely on the home stretch. Um, but yes, it's, uh, yeah. There's something nice about still, uh, you know, being a PhD candidate. You, you kind of um, can, can take a little bit more time. You can read the literature, you can... Yeah, There's uh, I don't know. I very much enjoyed my PhD experience. Um, even at this late stage, it's just, yeah, got a, got a uh, kind of six month express run to get it done. Mm. Like the
0: way you go. <laughs> I think I think that's a good sign. So many people are like, oh my PhD this. I'm like, well, why'd you bother doing it? Like, if you don't I loved it as well. I think yeah. it was absolutely brilliant. So and I but I think when you're really interested in a topic and you really want to do it, it's completely different. And some people start and think, you know, I asked them, like, well, if you hate it so much, why did you do it? Oh, but well, I did honors and I didn't know what to do. And then like, my, my girlfriend and my boyfriend was doing it. So I just did a PhD as well. I'm like that was this fucking stupid thing to do. <laughs> that was just idiotic. Like <laughs> you really have to really Does be very interested pay, yeah yeah lot, to, lot to
1: do for just you know yeah. when you're not too sure what you want to do um, i think you should be
0: really passionate about the topic if not don't bother like you're just wasting your time and other people's time as well so yeah just don't be it's not a forklift ticket don't take a box you know yeah you've, you've yeah, got to yeah. really you got to really enjoy it so yeah so um when you finish and and all said and done what's the future for you Haley? will you be will you try to go into full-time research will you continue with your counseling Will you do a hybrid? What's, what's your future goal?
1: Yeah, look, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to try and, and go for the research career. I still want to do a little bit of clinical work. Um, sort of, a, I, a, you know, in, in the sleep clinics, it's, you know, it kind of keeps the research really relevant. Um, so if I can do a little bit of a hybrid, but yeah, I'd love to sort of make it more full time kind of research. Yeah um if possible uh so uh yeah hopefully future research um be able to sort of yeah get some funding and uh yeah go down that that track to sort of fellowship um that that will be the dream so uh wish me luck
0: <laughs> that will be the, that will be the dream yes the dream of the dream yeah.
1: yeah excellent and
0: um you think you'd be staying in australia or you're willing to move yeah in yeah. australia Yeah yeah yeah.
1: Uh, yeah i don't know like i did i thought start a phd i'd um was really keen to go overseas and there's some amazing sleep research groups in the state um but yeah i think the pandemic i don't know i was sort of yeah quite enjoy australia
0: <laughs> so, <Yeah>. well things <laughs> where you are
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah i don't know i sort of yeah, I, I, I like Australia, and, and there's still a lot of great sleep research that's happening here, and we can still collaborate a lot with overseas over Zoom, yeah. um, so we don't necessarily have to go and, and um, do the, the hard slog of postdocs over in the States. So hopefully, yeah, Yeah. stay here and, and um, be able to continue on with some of this work.
0: That's great. Well, look, Hailey, thanks very much for speaking to us today. I really appreciate it. And um, if people want to get in contact with you, how can they follow you, get in contact um talk to you about your research or, you know, whatever it might be. How, what's the best way?
1: Yeah, well, I'll do a Twitter plug. Follow me on Twitter.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> uh, sleep psych underscore Oz. Um, or, yeah, you can, I've got a website, Hazel Meek on Psychology. You can um, shoot me a query through that and I'll get back to you. Um, or, yeah, if you're going to to sleep down under this year, I'm planning to be there in person too. So if people are curious um, to have a bit more of a chat about some dream research. Um, yeah, love to, love to connect.
0: Excellent. Well, uh, check out the show notes for this episode. The full paper is there and you can read it and go through all these themes. It's about 500 pages long. It uh, <laughs> <laughs> definitely want to read. Hayley, thank you very much.
1: No worries. Thank you so much.